All right. Um, well, with that, let's get our Bibles and let's turn to um, the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, if you are visiting with us this morning, we welcome you. We're glad that you can be with us this morning. Um, we are a church that uh, typically likes just to work our way through a book of the Bible, and uh, we are um, on our second uh, sermon, our second time in 2 Samuel this morning, and uh, we are, however, starting at verse 1 again, 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1 through 16. Let's stand as we read this together. Verses 1 through 16. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he had come to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Um, David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I, was hap I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close up upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Lord, would you help us this morning as we walk through what has been for many a difficult passage of Scripture. There seems to be a contradiction going on. There seems to be a harshness in David's response to this man. And yet, Lord, we need to understand what it is that you want us to see from this passage and to be able to see it clearly, uh, to have a, a better insight, Lord, as to what it is that you desire for us to do, for us to think about as we pursue you as our Lord and Savior. So, Lord, allow me this morning to be your mouthpiece. So, Lord, fill 
my mouth with truth, Lord, that is from your word. Would you guide my thoughts and guide my lips and my tongue, Lord, to help the body of believers that are here to see, Lord, who you are and how beautiful you are and, Lord, how you want each of us to grow. And we need your help, Lord. Help us to be faithful listeners, Lord, as as well as for me, Lord, to be a faithful preacher of your word. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In the London Telegraph, on December 14th, 2015, there's a headline that says this, Drunk Driver Hides in Nativity Scene. Let me read it. In Yorkshire, England, a drunk driver slammed his Mini Cooper into a metal barrier and fled the scene, finding sanctuary from law enforcement in a nativity scene about 200 yards away. He was found by the police as one easily distinguished from one of the wise men. One of them, the police said, he was clearly lacking any frankincense. See, criminals and those running away from the law can often act in ways that leave us humored and scratching our heads, and not all of them are really thinking through what they're seeking to do. And that was evident on June 25th, 2015, when a man by the name of Renaud Pleiser broke into a New Hampshire home with the intent of robbing it. And he went into room after room, opening drawers and going into closets and rummaging through whatever he could rummage through. And he exhausted all that, and he find, finally found himself in the kitchen. And he opened the refrigerator and saw that there were some leftover chicken wings. He ate those and promptly fell asleep in the guest bedroom Thinkingly, leaving his sneakers outside the door, he woke up at 6 a.m. in the morning with a shotgun held to his head by the homeowner. See, someone didn't quite think through things, did they? The chicken wing thief. Here's a story from Arkansas. You thought it couldn't get any worse. Um... Here's the headline, Arkansas Burglar Stuck in Chimney. An Arkansas burglar stuck inside a chimney was freed by firefighters early this week, it says. He's trying to get into a pawn shop through, of course, the chimney. And the store's owner came back to the pawn shop, and he said, I'm still in disbelief. When we come into work, I I open the door up, And heard someone some sounds. I thought maybe something got lodged in there. And uh, the authorities were able to get him out. They had to pull him up by his arms and finally get him out. And uh, the owner of of the pawn shop continued by saying, I've never imagined anybody coming down the chimney, in part because nobody can come down the chimney. It's sealed off at the bottom. He added, he could have been there a long time before anyone knew he was there. No water, no no food, no anything. I actually felt kind of sorry for him. He looked pitiful. The alleged burglar told the authorities, and I quote, I was simply walking across the roof of the store Tuesday evening when I accidentally fell inside the chimney. (laughs) 
Of course, the police did not believe his side of the story. Now, I'm sharing this with you because, you know, when people try and do things that are of, of a criminal nature, sometimes they just do not think. And they do humorous, foolish things, right? I mean, another one that, that, that has come up in, in, I would say, more recent years are these guys that might go into a store to rob the store, and they, they, they have saggy pants, and so they try and get away, and the pants are so saggy that they fall and they trip, and, you know, they just, they don't think through what it is that they're doing. So some criminals can be really stupid, sorry to use the S word, but they're caught and are quite easily taken into custody. You might even be able to or be tempted to say that crime in this case doesn't pay. But some criminals are extremely clever and get away with lots of cash and stolen property. And for them, crime does pay. And in fact, if you were to go into almost every town in every nation, Every place around this world, you're going to find some people that are looking to make money or to gain some benefit by working outside the law, of being criminals. For them, crime does pay. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a victim of a scam before, but sometimes it can be pretty intimidating. A few years ago, we got a phone call from a guy who said he was... Uh, working for a collection agency, and he said that one of our vehicles, named the specific vehicle, had uh, been involved in a hit and run on uh, Hayward Boulevard, which is up by where we live, right, right next to the, um, the university there, named the vehicle, gave the license plate of the vehicle, gave the location of where the hit and run took place as far as the, the location on the road, as well as what part of the vehicle w- was actually... Uh, used to hit the other vehicle. And he said, and the insurance company has been trying to get a hold of you for the last few months, sending you letters and calling you. And of course, I'm like, this is the first that we've heard of it. And he says, and if you do not pay up, then we're going to be taking this to court. There's a police record, and you need to call this number, and we need to solve this, or this is what's going to happen. That's pretty intimidating. You're like, oh, wow, look at all this information. Well, I mean, think through what they've done. They saw our vehicle, which is our old vehicle, which is our, what our kids drive, right? And there's a few dents in there, a few scratches here and there. They look at the license plate. They see where you're, you're at, and they create some scenario. And the scenario sounds very plausible, And then they throw this intimidation factor. The police have a record. There are witnesses, and we're going to take you to court if you don't respond. And there are many people that are like, oh, what do I want to do? You tell me what I have to do, and I'll do it to make sure that I'm not not, having to go to court or it's not even going to get worse for me. See, friends, crime, deceit can be extremely clever and extremely powerful And that, friends, is what we have as we come into our text today. You see, in 2 Samuel 1, 1 through 16, we have a man coming to David in Ziklag, claiming that Saul and Jonathan and the Israelites have been defeated by the Philistines, and that Saul in particular had asked him to finish him off. 
The problem, however, if you have been a reader of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, is that in 1 Samuel chapter 31, we have the record of what? Saul's death. And in that account, Saul is being surrounded by the Philistines, and he says to his armor bearer, listen, why don't you thrust me through with that sword because, and I'm using my vernacular here, I do not want to be manhandled by the Philistines. And so the armor bearer listening to him says, no, I can't do that. We can only assume out of respect. And so Saul ends up falling on his own sword. But the reality is, There are two accounts. So how do you determine which account is right? Is it it the narrator or is it um, this Amalekite who has come to David in Ziklag? What do you do when you have two different accounts? Well, first of all, you can assume that the, the editor was a hack, right? That he didn't know what he was doing. And some people, that's how they that's how they view the Bible. They see that the Bible is just some some work that has been kind of thrown together and the editor really didn't know what he was talking about. Why would you have two accounts that are almost identical but different back-to-back in a book like this? The editor wasn't even thinking through. But friends, that, that that just won't work. You might assume that this is a typical thing for Scripture in that it is a human document that was put together over hundreds of years and it contradicts itself at Times and what God is, is saying specifically is important. What's really important is what this means to me when I read it. And friends, of course, that won't do because that's not what God says about his word, and that is not true about his word at all. The issue isn't what your opinion is of this word or what the text says. Uh, it, it is what the text says. That's what matters. All right, Dale Davis gives us the, the first principle to help us interpret this passage. Here's what he says. Do we have two accounts? Not really. We have this narrator's description of what happened in 1 Samuel 31, and we have the Amalekite story of what happened in 2 Samuel 1, verses 3 through 10. And he says the solution is simple. The Amalekite lied. And here's his logic. If you ever have a choice between the narrator and an Amalekite, always believe the narrator. And he's right, because the narrator is actually telling the story. And now the narrator is telling the story of someone who is telling the story. You get that? The narrator is giving you the true facts. The Amalekite was a character in the story that the narrator was showing you tell a lie. But not only that, there is a little clue in 2 Samuel chapter 4 And verse 10, and this is David reflecting back on this encounter with this Amalekite, and here's what it says. This is David speaking. When one told me, speaking of this Amalekite, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. So this passage reveals that man's motives were not Uh, to be truthful, but to serve his own ends. He was looking for a particular kind of reward. Now, 
We're kind of working our way here to the beginning and looking at our text. But just, just understand, people have always questioned as to which one of these accounts is true, which one of them is false. And the text just kind of lays it out for us when we understand that you give the narrator that authority to say what he needs to say. And what David says here only reinforces the reality of what took place. Now, as a little bit of backdrop to the story, what has happened in 1 Samuel, the end of 1 Samuel, is you have an account of Saul, an account of David, an account of Saul, an account of David. What's happening with Saul in the north, what's happening with, with David in the south, and again and again. And the point is that when we come to this particular text, David does not know what is going on with Saul up in the northern part of Israel. He's not aware that Saul secretly went to visit the witch of Endor. He's not aware that in that encounter that there seemed to be some kind of revelation of Samuel the prophet speaking to Saul and telling him that this very next day you're going to die. David is unaware of all of that stuff. And he is genuinely concerned about Saul and Jonathan and the people of Israel because he was a part of the Philistine army that was gathering together. And it was a huge army. And by God's providence, he was sent away because the Philistines didn't trust David. So he went down back to his city. He found the city had been destroyed by the Amalekites. He and his men chased after them, ended up defeating them, and they came back to Ziklag. That's kind of where the story is now. So he really has no idea what's going on up there. And to be sure, he is eager to find out. Does that make sense? All right? The odds were against them from a numerical perspective. So this text is all about how different people respond to the death of the Lord's anointed. And friends, it's, it's, it's a question that we need to ask ourselves. How do we respond to the death of the Lord's anointed? And this passage naturally divides into three sections. The first one where we learn of Saul's death. The second one where there's mourning over Saul's death. The third one where there's judgment at Saul's death. Those are not the headings, but that is simply, simply how um, those, past, those sections unfold. Well, let's look at the, this first section, what I'm calling feigned compassion. Feigned compassion. As we learn of Saul's death, we quickly understand that it comes from a man who is feigning compassion for the Lord's anointed. A little bit about his identity. It says in verse 2, And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp. It's almost like Saul's, uh, uh, David is, is looking, and the people are looking, and they see a man in the distance, and behold, there he is. He's coming, and he's coming to Ziklag. Now, we're not given a name for this man, but his identity develops as the encounter unfolds. He goes from being called a man to a young man, and then ultimately he is identified as an Amalekite. Now the significance of the man's identity is ironic. You might say, well, why is it ironic? Well, because David has just been out defeating what people group? The Amalekites. All right? All right, it had been three days, but you can imagine uh, the people coming back to the city, trying to rebuild the city and get all their stuff back together where it was and, um, 
and here comes this, this young man who is an Amalekite. That shows up a little later in the story, but there certainly is some symbolism that is, that is, that is causing us to think there, okay? Secondly, notice his manner. It says, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Um, we're told here that he comes from Saul's camp. That was about an 80-mile journey on foot. That's like you walking to Salinas, all right? Anyone up for it? That's a long way after a battle, all right? So he's going through this rough terrain to get to Ziklag to communicate to David what has happened. So you can imagine that this man is travel-worn, right? Secondly, we're told here he has, he has uh, torn clothes and dirt on his head. The idea is these are signs of humility and mourning. So, in fact, the people really didn't have to ask too many questions about how it went. His, his whole body is screaming mourning. And the third thing that we're told here is that when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Seems that he knows of David and how significant this news would be to David. And here we have this picture of one who is humbly and respectfully bowing before the king. In fact, this man may be the only person that knows that at this present moment, because Saul is dead and Jonathan, the heir apparent, is dead, that David is to be the next king. Okay? Now, let's think about his story. And friends, just, just hang with me as we walk through this section, because there's some intricacies that just need to be unfolded. There's a developing story here and a developing punchline. As the man is bowing before David, David breaks the ice and asks him the first of three questions. Question number one, where do you come from? And the man said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Now, Like I said, there's ample news already simply by his body language and, and how he looks. But David wants details. He wants to know specifically where he came from. And he says, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Now, I don't know if that word escaped is, is in this story to kind of link us back to David and his interaction with Saul. If you remember, David constantly did what? Escaped from Saul. That's the word that is used in the text. David right now is in a position of escaping from Saul because he is in Ziklag, he's in the Philistine territory. And here this man says, I escaped. In other words, I'm, I am one of you now. I'm doing the same thing that you were doing. But the important thing for us to remember at this moment is the man's words sound truthful. There's no reason for David to think otherwise. Then there's another question. Verse 4, and David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. In other words, what happened? And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Now this is the news that David anticipated but did not want to hear. Remember, David is still a full-blown Israelite. And he's still concerned for the welfare of the people of Israel, even if they had followed Saul 
And so when this, this expression, how did it go, is given, um, it's a significant question. By the way, it also takes us back in the story of 1 Samuel to another encounter. In fact, if you want to just turn there, 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Here we have another leader of Israel sitting and waiting for the news of battle. And his name is what? Eli. And notice in verse 16 and 17, on that occasion, this messenger came with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, and he gave the bad news to Eli. And this is what he says. I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? There's that expression. He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark has been captured. That was a very, very sad day in Israel because of the defeat, also because of the capture of the ark. But that was also the day of Eli's ultimate fulfilled judgment. There's something ominous going on here. That on these two occasions, the news of a messenger in similar fashion and with similar news would announce the bad news that would mark the end of an era in Israel, whether it's Eli or whether it's Saul, both marked by a messenger who's responding with this, the end of Eli's influence and the death of his sons, the end of Saul's influence and the death of his sons. Now here's the bad news in summary form. The people have been routed. Saul the king is dead. Jonathan, David's covenant friend, is also dead. Now Saul is dead, and so his heir apparent, Jonathan, is also dead. There's no mention in this account of Saul's other sons who are dead. That would be Abinadab and uh, Milkashua. They also died in battle. Still, there's no reason for David not to believe this man's report yet. Before him... He sees a humble, respectful man who has taken upon himself to find David and to announce to him the sad news of the battle. And remember, David, David did not know um, uh, what was going on with Saul, but he did know that this day would come. Now I want to turn to 1 Samuel 26 and verse 10, just to or just write it down, here's what, here's what David is saying as he's thinking about Saul, because he will not touch the Lord's anointed. He says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. That was David's attitude. In other words, I'm not going to kill him. God is going to have to do this. He'll strike him, or maybe his day will come to die, or he'll go down into battle. All three of those things took place in this one event. So David knew that Saul's death would usher in his own succession as king over Israel. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on here in this story, in this news, in this encounter. But we must ask ourselves some questions about these events. Did David notice something in this man's manner that pointed to a lack of integrity? I mean, you know what it's like when you're talking to someone, but there's something about their countenance, there's something about their mannerism. So did David sense that this man thought that he was bringing David good news rather than bad news? 
Was there something amiss in the way this man was communicating his news? Something in the tone of his words or the expression on his face or the the body language that was there? We really don't know. But David isn't satisfied yet. He continues on and he presses home a third question. How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? So the focus now is no longer on the bad news. The focus now is on the messenger and how do you know? Now let's consider his words and just tease some things out here. Verse 6, And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. We could pounce on that by chance thing, right? Um, but we want to be careful because we don't want to read too much into it. What we do know, first of all, is that he's claiming to be an eyewitness of Saul's death. This is what he saw. I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. If you look at the other account, yep, that's what it says. This is what Saul was doing. So he's, he's an eyewitness to Saul's death, apparently. Verse 7, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. So now we understand that not only was he an eyewitness, but he was close enough to hear Saul speak. And this is where his account and his great deception changes course. Verse 8, and he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Now here's an interesting turn of events, right? He is an Amalekite. Can you imagine Saul leaning on a spear close to death and there's someone that shows up and Saul says, who are you? And he says, I'm an Amalekite. Now wouldn't that be ironic? Because it was the Amalekites that Saul was supposed to have wiped out. But in his rebellion and disobedience to God, he would not and he did not. And if it were true, then David would have been shocked for the same reason. The irony of God's providence of having just returned from striking down the Amalekites who destroyed this town and taken the women and the children and the spoils away, the irony of having this man standing in front of him also. Now it's clear that the narrator of the story kept this piece of information from us until this point. He's trying to stress to us there's something about this man that we need to see that is deceptive, that is conniving, that is pursuing a different agenda. We know that he is now lying because his account differs from the narrator's account. Verse 9, and he said to me, stand beside me, this is the Amalekite speaking, stand beside me, sorry, this is the Amalekite speaking about what Saul is saying to him, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. So the young Amalekite man, having stumbled upon Saul's predicament, claims that he has killed Saul as an act of obedience and compassion. He followed Saul's instructions in order to protect Saul from being mistreated and manhandled by the Philistines. So there's something very plausible about his story. 
And to prove that what he is saying is true, to prove that he actually was there, and to give, I want to say, uh, support to his story, he produces now the crown and the armlet. So basically he's saying this, I have done what my king has asked me to do. He's saying, I have been obedient, I have been compassionate, and now I have traveled all this way to bring you this news. There's a couple of things that I think flow out of this story that we need to wrestle with this morning. First of all, this, this idea of lying and deception. Sir Walter Scott, in his great poem, is well known for this statement. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And we have that going on in this text. And friends, Lying and deception is a sin that God hates, but the the pages of Scripture are full of accounts and records of tangled webs that are created when we give into these sins. Consider Jacob, who is known as the deceiver. How would you like to have that next to your name? Because he, with the help of his mother Rebecca, fooled his father Isaac into thinking that he was the brother or his brother Esau, and so he stole Esau's birthright through deception. And then you know the story of, of Achan. As the Israelites were going into the promised land and conquering the promised land, they were told as they went into the city of Jericho, this city has been put to the ban. In other words, everything in it had to be destroyed. All the people, all the, all the animals, all of the spoils were not to be taken. But Achan could not, could not hold back. He had to take something that he saw, and he took a beautiful Babylonian garment 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold and hid them in his tent. I, I, in that story, the thing that always just boggles my mind is like, all right, so you have this Babylonian garment and where are you going to wear it? But I have it. And what are you going to do with it? Right? It's kind of like a, a pastor saying, um, you know, I took off one Sunday morning to go play golf and I got a hole in one. But he can't tell anyone, Right? I mean, it's just, you're in this pickle. He's stolen this stuff, but he can't tell anyone. He can't do anything with it. But he is exposed for being a sinner as well as a deceiver. And his decision caused harm to many people on that day. Consider the many verses of warning in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Let me just read a few for them for you. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty, and the deceitful man. That's Psalm 5, verse 6. Psalm 32, 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Proverbs 12, 5. The thoughts of the righteous are just. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Proverbs 26, 24 through 26. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart when he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Of course, consider the story of Ananias and Sapphira 
who wanted to impress the congregation with their giving and presented that they were giving a significant amount from their resources, but actually held back a portion of it. And ultimately that day, because of their deception, not just to the congregation, but also to the Lord, ended up in two graves. And their names are are, are a resounding gong that reminds us that God hates lying and deception. And consider the daunting words of Christ, Luke chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. What he's saying is that lying and deceit will be exposed. What God desires of his people is truth in the inward parts. That's David writing in Psalm 51.6. And we must all remember that God sets our secret sins in the light of his presence. He is aware of them. He sees them. So not only is this passage just revealing some things about lying and deception, it's also revealing something to us about this man's selfish motivation. Isn't there something absolutely despicable about this young Amalekite man? When you, when you understand this is all a ruse, you, you see his motive, and it would appear that he is willing to use the death of Saul, the Lord's anointed, for his own personal benefit. He's willing to use this tragedy so that he can gain So his dirty head and torn clothes were only a ruse to gain favor with David, this new king. And his story, friends, is so close to the truth, but it was cleverly connived and behind it a deception that sought to bring self-glorification with the hopes of self-promotion. But isn't that the heart of lying and deception? It seeks the goal of self-promotion, self-preservation, self-glorification. You usually lie because you're more interested with yourself than you are with the truth. I was privileged to have a pastor by the name of Paul Vanneman. And he was from the old school. So he was one of those guys that didn't need a microphone. He could bellow his message loud. And when he preached, you could hear him. And the other thing, and I've told you this before, he had this finger that he had broken so many times that it was was stuck like this. And he would point when he preached. And so you all felt that he was pointing directly at you. Because it wasn't like this, it was like this. And everyone was like, oh, he's pointing at me. And I remember one time when he was going through Numbers 32 and verse 32, a passage where Moses is warning the tribes of Reuben and Gad to be obedient and follow the Lord. And if they were not, he says this, be sure your sins will find you out. And there he held his finger, right? And as a result, it has been a passage of Scripture that has helped me to avoid lying and deception 
as well as many other sins because I still see his bony finger pointing at me with those words in his mouth. And I still hear him lovingly bellow those words of warning. He said, listen to me. Be sure your sins will find you out. And of course, as he's saying that, you're just like, okay, okay, I got it. You know, pressing it home out of love with a warning from God's word. That God does not honor those who lie those who deceive, and those who turn away from him in their sin, in rebellion. Now friends, I plead with you this morning to pay attention, to be sure your sins will find you out. And rather than continue to hide your deceit or maintain that lie, to trust God and to repent and to come clean with God and others that maybe you have wronged or you've sinned against or you've deceived. Here's the reality, friends. In God's kingdom, we have to deal with a God who sees, who exposes, and ultimately judges. You see, the kingdom is coming in the story. The unfolding kingdom of God is, is being established. And in this kingdom, God's people will know that he is a God who sees. He is a God who exposes, and he is a God who ultimately judges. So you might be like this Amalekite and try to fool a king. You might be successful and fool your friends and your family. You might even be successful fooling those in your church as we sit here together and we open our Bibles and we spend time together. But there is one who is watching who knows and is not deceived. He is not. And Paul reminds us in Romans 2.16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus, he will judge us by Christ Jesus. Yet, having said all that, he is a God who forgives when we confess and repent of our sins. His warnings are strong. His forgiveness is stronger. Here we have a man feigning Compassion. Now we want to move into what I'm calling genuine grief. So although the message from the young Amalekite man has been deception, it still contained enough truth about the, the plight of Israel and the evidence that this man had been there and he was telling the truth about John, Saul and Jonathan at least being dead. And so it's the next two verses that really are the heart of this text. This story is leading us now to a response to the death of the Lord's anointed by David and the rest of the people that are there. And the anguish of the news far outweighs the judgment that must take place. And we'll see that in just a bit. This was not the response, I don't think, that the Amalekite was expecting. I think he was probably expecting to come and tell the news and David would be like, oh, now I can be king. No, 
That's not how he responds at all. Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. The language of mourning, friends, is throughout this text. The Amalekite may have entered Ziklag with feigned mourning, but there's nothing feigned about David's grief here at all. The emphasis on David and the people's manner stresses the depth of their grief. They, they tore their clothes. They wept. They fasted until evening. My understanding is that in all the passages of the Bible where it talks about mourning, that this is the only one that uses three words to describe the actual grief and the behavior of those who are grieving. What are God's people to do when one of their own falls face first in the muck and mire of sin? What is it that your heart tends toward when you hear that one who names the name of Christ has been enticed by sin and has wandered off to live like the world? Do you rejoice that they have been exposed for being hypocrites? Does your heart somehow say, yes, you see, they weren't really one of God's children like I am. I'm too close to God to do something like that. My friends, we've got to guard our heart because there are times when, in particular, I'm thinking people in leadership in the church that are in public places uh, that maybe we disagree with on a certain point and they've, they've actually fallen into sin and they've had to step out of ministry and there could be a part of us that say, yeah, I'm glad that God took care of them. Where do we grieve? I just, just get the point here. Saul was rebellious and disobedient to God. He was the Lord's anointed. But there's no smugness in David here. There's no joy at the news that David, the king of Israel, is dead. Even though he was living a life of rebellion against God, David simply sees it as tragedy, a horrible tragedy that needs to be mourned, a life of opportunity that was scorned, we notice now the, the objects then of, of mourning. It's a tragedy of one man that has affected the lives of so many. Again, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord. So they're mourning for Saul, who was the Lord's anointed. They're mourning for Jonathan, David's covenant friend. And you just think what's going on through in David's heart when he hears that news about Jonathan because Jonathan was loyal to his father but also loyal to David. He was caught up in this but not himself guilty of, his, of the rebellion that his father was experiencing. We'll see this expressed next week as we look at David's lament. But there's also mourning for the people of the Lord which is the same thing as the house of Israel and this morning was not selfish. This, this was for the people, for the house of Israel. It's for our friends and our, our brothers who have died at the hands of the Philistines. Why? Because of Saul's disobedience. 
because of Saul's rebellion. Now, friends, hear this. When was the last time that you wept for the sin going on in the church? Do you mourn for the unbelief in the gospel that is so rampant in American Christianity? Do you mourn for the apostasy, the the slow turning away from God that is presently taking place among the churches? Do you mourn for the coldness in the church toward unbelievers that is the result of not trusting in a sovereign God, but trusting in an upcoming election instead? Have we become so haughty that we cannot weep over the sin and the rebellion of God's people? Have we settled into a judgmentalism that simply says they have their chance and they'll get what they deserve and say that without shedding a tear. Do we weep over sin? And do we weep over tragedy? Have we forgotten to weep through the ministry of prayer for those who have tasted the gospel but will not bow down to it? For those who have, have the word in their homes but won't take the time to pick it up and truly be fed by it? Do we weep for those who, who need the help of the body of Christ but are too proud to admit it? Do we weep for those who are struggling with sin and unbelief? Do we weep? This past week I attended a wake of a 26-year-old girl by the name of Rostini Gomez. She's a distant cousin that I had never met. She went to bed after celebrating Christmas Day with her family, complaining of a headache. Her grandmother went into her room in the morning and found her dead. She had a brain hemorrhage. It was shocking, it was tragic. And as I sat there next to my wife and a few other family members that were with us, and there was an extended family that I really don't know that well, had never met this girl before in my life, but I'm watching the slideshow, and I'm thinking to myself, this girl was beautiful. So much life that she still had to live. She was active, she was involved in all sorts of, of different things, and it seemed to be like she had be a lot of fun to be around. But in a moment, and not because of anything that she had done, she was dead. And I found myself shedding a tear for someone I didn't even know. Now friends, my goal is not here to be sensational and to stir up emotions, but it's to press home God's call for us to mourn and in particular to mourn over sin and in our humility to say to ourselves, that could be me. That could be one of my kids. That could be one of the people that is part of the church that's wandered off into sin. Do I care? Do I weep? Do I pray for this person? If it was me who was struggling with unbelief or apostasy or coldness 
or entangled in some kind of sin? How would I want God's people to respond? Well, I certainly would want them to respond biblically. I would want them to mourn and weep for my soul, for my relationship with God, that it would be restored, that it would be right. I would want them to pray for my restoration. I would want them to pray um, that, that as they lovingly came alongside me and called me to repentance, that I would repent. Friends, there's a, there's a grieving that's going on here because of sin. And I wonder whether or not we've forgotten what it's like to grieve, not just over death, but over the entanglement of sin. As we move on, our text takes a turn. Now, the narrator may have taken liberties to put the events of the grief before the events of the judgment here. But he wants us to see the grief. And he wants us to see David, who is consumed with grief and is a model for grief in the right sense, in the right way. But now we need to get back to the the judgment that is necessary for this man. This might come as a shock. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? I want you to notice, first of all, the Amalekite's guilt. The Amalekite had crafted a very believable tale, hoping that he would find favor with David. But he gravely miscalculated David's response. He thought that David would be be overjoyed and, and thank him for the good news that he had brought, but David is not joyful. And this man's story is now going to turn on its head. His lie has made him guilty. He is guilty of deceit, of self-promotion, of stealing, and for feigning compassion for the Lord's anointed. But the irony in this story is the Amalekite receives punishment ultimately for what he said he had done, even though he actually hadn't done it. But the facts are, the whole thing was a sham. What really happened at Mount Gamboa? Let's... Just put the pieces together in the story. Here's, here's how I see it unfolding. The events of 1 Samuel 31 are what really happened. But somewhere nearby, slithering behind some rock, this, this young man, this young Amalekite, was watching and listening to Saul interacting with his armor bearer. And when the armor bearer said, no, I'm not going to kill you, when he saw David fall on his own sword, then almost immediately the armor bearer fell on his own sword then, boom, up rises this Amalekite. He seizes opportunity. He ran to where Saul lay dead. He removed his crown and the amulet from his arm, and he took off. And he took the facts that were true, and he adjusted them to fit his fabricated story. But he also had to play the part. And so he arrives in Ziklag, looking to gain David's favor, feigning humility, feigning mourning, feigning a loyal compassion for Saul, his king. It was a well-told tale, but David could see right through it. And so David 
asks two questions that lay open the Amalekites' guilt. Question number one, where do you come from? Where do you come from? This is a different question than before. He was asking before, from where have you come? Now he's talking about, what's your place of origin? What tribe are you from? To whom do you belong? And you're like, well, didn't he already say that he was an Amalekite? Yes. But notice the answer of this this man. He says, I am the son of a sojourner and an Amalekite. So there's something significant here in the story that helps us understand that actually the sojourner as an Amalekite was welcome in the land of Israel. This was a different group than the Amalekites. He was an Amalekite who was, you might want to say, a resident alien in Israel. And a resident alien of Israel did not have the benefits of the citizenship of the Israelites, but they also were willing to live in the land so long as they submitted to the law that governed that land. They were subjects under that same law. So in other words, he's a young man who should have known better than to put his hand against the Lord's anointed. You go into a land where there is a law saying I'm going to submit to that law while I'm living here. You are bound by that law. And it's your responsibility to know that law. And as this this man speaks, he reveals himself not just to be an Amalekite that should be killed, but now a sojourner, a resident alien who should have known better because of the law of the land that you do not touch the Lord's anointed. So this is where question number two comes in. How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to to destroy the Lord's anointed? Okay, if you're a resident alien benefiting from the law and also subject to it, why were you not afraid? The Lord's anointed, friends, is the Bible language for the one chosen and appointed by God to represent him as king. And there are two simple, very basic principles here about this. Only God himself may both appoint and remove his anointed. This is why David would not put his hand against Saul. Number two, when you oppose the Lord's anointed, you oppose the Lord himself. David understood that. Saul's armor bearer understood that. But the Amalekite did not. Now notice the word afraid. It teaches us the principle for kingdom living that we could quite easily pass. There is supposed to be a healthy, saving fear that keeps us treating the Lord's anointed with a reverence that he deserves. It's a fear that preserves us. It's a fear that controls us. It's a healthy, reverential fear that keeps us going down the path in a way that truly respects and honors God for who he is, rather than kind of playing loose with him. Jesus is not your co-pilot. He is your great God and Savior. See, he's not just your buddy. He is the ruler of the universe. 
And we want to kind of bring him down so that we can feel like we can relate to him. The problem is we end up relating to him in levels that Scripture does not speak to. Yes, he is our friend, but he is so far different than our view of friendship. He is our great God and Savior. And he is to be worshipped that way. So as we think about David's justice, the Amalekite and his privileged status as a resident alien does not excuse him. In fact, it magnifies his guilt. So David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. See, that's the issue. I have killed the Lord's anointed. I have touched the Lord's anointed. That word touch in other translations, the idea is I've put my hand against him. And so this man has been killed on the basis of his own confession. It was a lie, but a lie that had grave consequences. He was forced to live with the consequences of his own deception. Now, for us today, who is the Lord's anointed? Who is the king who now reigns? And of course, the answer to that is Jesus himself. But I want you to notice something about uh, how he is described He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a righteous king. He is the anointed one who is righteous. That's what 1 John is saying. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, Matthew 6 and Romans 14, 17 tell us. He will judge the world, how? In righteousness. See, God is a God of righteousness. His righteousness permeates his kingdom, and he will judge the world in righteousness. And here's the point. If you take God's kingdom seriously, you must take God's righteousness seriously. Now, friends, I just want to push this a little bit for us. The importance of us learning the attributes of God. To say that Jesus is righteous is to say that everything he does is right. He is fair. He is just in his activities. The act of David in our text was a righteous act. When Jesus stands and judges the world for their sin in that day, he will judge righteously. It will be fair, it will be just, it will be right. There will be no one that can argue against it. Because what he will be doing will be perfectly appropriate. Because of his righteous character. And friends, that's why we're called to live in this world in such a way that we're seeking first the kingdom of God. What? And his righteousness. That's what we're called to do. But the righteous king is also a king who forgives when we repent. He restores those who turn to him for help. He has mercy on those who seek mercy. He heals those who cry out to him for help. But he does not reward the unrighteous. Let me leave us with three words that kind of flow out of this question What is your attitude toward Jesus, the Lord's anointed? Three words. First of all, I'm I'm just asking you to reflect. To reflect. And I'll just give you some examples of the kind of things I'm talking about. Have you become lazy in your gratitude toward God? 
Have you become cavalier in your thinking? In other words, thinking lightly about what he says. Are you in some way using Christ to pursue your own selfish agenda? Have you lost your reverential fear of him? See, do you weep over the gospel? Do you weep over your unworthiness? Do you weep over Christ's love? Do you weep over your forgiveness? When you stand as a church to celebrate the Lord's table, is there, is there a part of you that is stopping and thinking, not just about your salvation, but about Jesus Christ who accomplished it all? And do you weep for all that took place against the Lord's anointed? Secondly, then, from that, of course, is repent. Now, sometimes our repentance is like in the big areas. But I want to encourage you as you reflect, repent on the the little nuances that God reveals to you. There's an area in your life where you're deceptive. Repent of it. Maybe you've told a lie. Repent of it. Maybe you're misrepresenting yourself in some way. Repent of it. There's a sin that you're harboring. Repent of it. See, get down to the nitty-gritty specific and repent of that sin. We, we are more satisfied saying, okay, God, I repent. Just, just throw it all in there. But God would want us to reflect and to see exactly what it is that we have actually done against him to call it out and to repent of our sin. And then finally, the word renew. You see, we cannot find freedom. We cannot find, I might say, new direction. We cannot find um, hope and, and uh, uh, the, the, the path that God has laid for us unless we go through the hard work of repentance. There is liberty, liberation that comes when God's forgiveness is granted, and it's through God's forgiveness that we can pick up the pieces and we can press on for his glory. None of us has arrived. We are all still struggling sinners whose sins have been paid for, but sins that constantly get in the way, and we need to press on through repentance and the forgiveness that comes from that repentance and then doing what God calls us to do. And friends, it's not easy. But it's the Christian walk. So don't play around with lying. Don't play around with deception. Reflect, repent, and renew your walk with God. Lord, help us today. You have been so kind to us. You have brought us into your family. You've elevated us to the position of sons with inheritance. You look down on us with grace and favor and 
You provide counsel through your breathed out word. So many things, Lord, you have done for us. And yet, Lord, it is so easy for us to be rebellious, stubborn, not want to listen. And Lord, it's so easy for us to fall into this trap of thinking that through deception and lying that we can make progress in this kingdom that you have established. But Lord, that is not your way. May we seriously come before you and reflect. Lord, may we humble ourselves with hearts that are repentant. And may we find a renewal, Lord, that only comes through you. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.